Welcome to Family History, Genealogy Made Easy. I'm your host, Lisa Louise Cook. You probably have a lot of curiosity about your family history, but not a lot of time. That's why I created this podcast. In each episode, I'm going to give you the tools you need to uncover your family tree in quick and easy ways. In our first segment today, my guest is Miriam Robbins Midkiff, a well-known genealogy blogger and teacher. I'm going to ask her for her best research tips and about what motivates her to delve into her family history and how that discovery has enriched her life. After a few years, they realized, gosh, I can't remember where I got that information. And conflicting information comes up and they're, they're not sure which is more valid because they don't know what the source was for each of those uh, varying pieces of information. So first of all, no matter what, write down where you have got your information. I began my search a number of years ago and one of my goals was to see if I could find information about my grandmother's biological uh, family. And I was able to, uh, to find out that information with a little bit of luck and some, some great research. I was able to contact her, uh, her aunt by marriage, who was not a whole lot older than she was. And because of that connection, uh, my grandmother was able to reunite with her cousins and with her aunt and, and really find some answers to some questions that she had. Then in our second segment, we're going to answer the question, why do we work backwards in genealogy? And then fire up the internet because we're going to be doing some searching online. that you've been doing family history research for quite some time now. So let's go back to the beginning and what prompted you to become interested in researching your family tree to begin with? Well, I grew up in southeast Alaska, about 3,000 miles away from the rest of my family who were living in western Michigan. My parents were doing mission work with the Native Americans there in Alaska. Whenever my family members came to visit, it was a really big deal for me. When I was 12 years old, our family went to Michigan to spend time with the rest of the family for the month of Christmas, for a whole month. And while we were there, my mother interviewed my dad's grandmother and got some information about my dad's side of the family tree and wrote it down. And she brought those notes home with her, and I read them, and I thought they were really interesting. And that's where I really started to get a big picture of the fact that I was part of a large family that involved many generations. And I think that's where my interest really started. That's a really interesting experience to have, and I I have one somewhat similar in that you can find yourself in a small nuclear family, perhaps many miles as you were in, away from the extended family, and you do have a sense that maybe this is all there is, and then all of a sudden, a couple of conversations and some questions, and then that whole door just kind of opens up, doesn't it? And you realize there's a whole lot more 
to us than than yeah. just this family. And another thing that really cultivated my interest in my heritage was the fact that we lived in a Native American community, and in public school we actually had classes on the Native American culture and heritage there, on some of the woodworking and the beading, the dancing and the language, and really a celebration of their culture. And that was a very unique experience, and I'm really glad to have had that that experience growing up. But my parents also wanted me to understand that I had my own heritage and my own culture that I could be equally proud of. And so what they started to do was to incorporate some of the Dutch traditions and elements of that culture into our everyday lives. Because when they looked at my family tree, they realized that I probably was more Dutch than anything else. So we started uh, celebrating St. Nicholas Day in December, and we had wooden shoes that St. Nicholas would fill with candy. And uh, my mom got a hold of a Dutch cookbook, and we started having some of the Dutch cuisine for meals, and, mm-hmm. and just learning more about my culture and my own heritage. And so that kind of added to what I was learning about my extended family members. That's interesting. Were, were these traditions that your family had always practiced, or was this something that she was kind of reviving? This was something that in many ways was new for several generations. My mother's great-grandparents had immigrated to the United States from the Netherlands, and so a lot of those things had just been lost over time as, as our family assimilated into the American culture. So really it was a, a new thing for us. How wonderful that she um, kind of reintroduced that to your family. Have you continued those things on with your own family? We have. I still have my clompin, my wooden shoes. Uh-huh. I have several pair of them, and my children put them out under the Christmas tree uh, December 5th, the evening of December 5th. And even though they're teenagers, they still like doing that. And in the morning, there are chocolates in the wooden shoes and there are little gifts and that's what we've always done in lieu of Santa and then once Christmas Day comes uh, we open our family gifts from one another so oh that sounds wonderful I know that you have been doing quite a lot of research and uh, you probably have learned some things over the years maybe things that you would have done differently when you first started if you knew then what you knew now We've got lots of listeners who are listening who are just getting started in their family history research. So what kind of advice would you have for them? Well, the first thing that I would do would be to make sure that you write down wherever you first start looking at your family tree. And I think that this is true for everyone who has uh, developed an interest in genealogy is after a few years, they realize, gosh, I can't remember where I got that information. And conflicting information comes up and they're, they're not sure which is more valid because they don't know what the source was for each of those uh, varying pieces of information. So first of all, no matter what, write down where you have gotten your information. If a, if a cousin has shared that information with you or you interviewed your grandparents or it came from the family Bible, 
make sure you write down that information very specifically. And then secondly, what I would do is don't be afraid to contact your local genealogical or historical society because they are a great living resource to help you in your research. Many people do not live in the area where their ancestors lived, and so they may think, gosh, why should I contact my local society because I'm the first generation that's ever lived in this area. Right. But the people in the genealogy and historical societies have had years, if not decades, of research experience. They know where to find information, and they know how to find it. They know what to do when you get stuck. And so they're a wonderful resource. And that's a, that's a good point because not only can you become a member perhaps of a society in a location where your ancestors were, you can kind of do it by mail, but like you say, connecting with the local genealogy society in your area is just a great resource. They always have their presentations and educational pieces they do and folks who are happy to give advice. So um, I think that's a great tip and you don't have to have ancestors in the town you live in in order to do that. That's correct. And my third piece of advice would be to check out and see if there is a family history center in your area. Because, again, there are volunteers at family history centers who can help you order microfilm from the Family History Library in Salt Lake City. Microfilm that may have uh, records on it that are about your ancestors, whether they're birth, marriage, or, or death records, census records, uh, land or court records, just about anything that you can think of in the way of records likely has been microfilmed by the Family History Library. And those Family History Centers, which are branch libraries of the one down in Salt Lake City, they are wonderful resources to tap into. And anybody can use a family history center, which is wonderful. They're, they're so helpful. They're free to go in and use. And then if you decide to order film, it's just a nominal cost, right? It is. It just is a great resource. And I don't think enough people utilize them. I agree. Those are all terrific tips. I'm wondering, now that you've kind of gone down the road of doing your research, what would you say that it's meaning to you today? You know, for the person who's saying, well, wow, what's all this going to mean to me if I do find it? What's it meant to you to find your heritage? Well, for me, it has um, helped me answer some making questions that I had about a couple of my family lines. For instance, my father's mother was an adopted child, and we didn't really know what the circumstances were surrounding her adoption, and we didn't know, of course, anything about her her family or heritage or any kind of medical information. We didn't have any stories or photographs from her biological family. It really was a brick wall or a black hole, so to speak. We did have information about her adoptive family, which was, which was very nice to have because definitely that family had shaped who she was and, and ultimately contributed to our own family. But I began my search a number of years ago, and one of my goals was to see if I could find information 
about my grandmother's biological family. And I was able to to find out that information with a little bit of luck and some some great research, I was able to contact her aunt by marriage, who was not a whole lot older than she was. And because of that connection, uh, my grandmother was able to reunite with her cousins and with her aunt and, and really find some answers to some questions that she had. And one of the questions, or, or perhaps one of the uh, misunderstandings that she had had about her own adoption was that perhaps her mother had rejected her or didn't want her. And we found out that that was not the case at all, that her parents had divorced when she was three and her younger mm-hmm. brother was two, and her mother was awarded custody of, of the children. But her father apparently did not wish to pay child support and um, decided one day to take the children away from their mother and um, drive them across the state and basically drop them off in an orphanage. And this was in, in the 1920s, and so women didn't have a whole lot of rights at that time. And, right. And he told the orphanage that their mother was not fit to raise them. And I, I really don't know if the orphanage uh, checked into those details or, or, or what, but at any rate, both my grandmother and her brother were adopted by two different families, but in the same small town. Mm-hmm. They grew up knowing they were biological siblings, but really not knowing anything about their past. Right. And my grandmother's brother passed away in his, uh, I in his late 30s, early 40s. And so she, really, she was all alone. And right. uh, by connecting her with her biological family on her mother's side, she was able to have some misconceptions um, uh, straightened out and to have some questions answered. And I think that meant more to her than, than anything else. And through all of that, I, I have found that to be really personally rewarding and, and really feel like my research and my genealogy did something good for someone else and ultimately for our own mm-hmm. So for me, that has been um, the wonderful reward of doing family history. It's like it all kind of came together from an interest in childhood fostered by your parents and asking some questions along the way. You really brought some comfort to your grandmother. Yes, I, I really felt like at the time, and I still do, I really felt like uh, this was something I was meant to do, that it really was meant for me to discover this information and, and to help reunite my grandmother with her family. Well, what a wonderful story. Thank you so much, Miriam, for joining us today and, and sharing that personal story and inspiring the rest of us to um, take those steps and discover our own family history. Well, thank you for having me, Lisa. We're back, and I'm your host, Lisa Louise Cook, and we're going to take the next steps on your journey to discover your family history. In our last episode, we talked about reconnecting with your older relatives and filling in the blanks in your genealogy database the best way that you can. I hope you got busy and made those calls, and undoubtedly, if you did, 
you had some success in filling in some of those blanks. Well, in this episode, we're going to answer the question, why do we work backwards in genealogy? And then we're going to fire up the internet to do some online research. When it comes to tracing your family history, there are standard methods that will help you build a solid family tree. Starting with yourself and working backwards is a cornerstone of genealogical research. Now, I know it will be tempting to start with a great-grandparent that you just got some juicy information on after interviewing Aunt Martha, but resist the temptation to start with that great-grandparent and go back to the beginning, and that's you. There's a really good reason why working backwards is so effective. Let's say that you've filled in information on yourself and then recorded everything about your parents, and now it's time to work on one of your grandfathers. And all you have is the date that he died and the date that he was born. Now, if you're lucky enough to have his birth date and birthplace, and you can get his birth certificate, it will tell you who his parents were, but it can't predict the future, can it? Where he went to school, where he lived over the years, etc., well, documents can only tell you what has occurred in the past, not what will occur in that person's future. But if you get his death certificate, it will give you key information at the end of his life that can lead you to the various events throughout his life. If you don't have his birth date and birthplace, you're probably going to find it on the death certificate. It will also likely have his parents' names and his spouse. A birth record can't tell you who he will marry, but a death record can tell you who he did marry. So you can start to see how starting at the end of somebody's life and working backwards will be the most efficient and accurate way to research. Records are kind of like the breadcrumb trail of your family tree. If you don't work systematically backwards, it will be very easy to miss a crucial piece of evidence, and you might end up relying on guesswork and end up building a false history on it. Believe me, you don't want to invest time in a tree that you're going to have to chop down and replant. So, now that you understand and are committed to following this cornerstone concept of systematically starting with yourself and working backwards, it's time to fire up the Internet and put it into practice by finding your first record. Now, what type of record will we be looking for? A death record, of course. Is one of your parents deceased? If so, you're going to start with them. If they're still living and you've got their information entered into your genealogy database, choose one of their parents, your grandparents, who is deceased. Or if you're lucky enough to be starting at a young age, you may have to even go back to a deceased great-grandparent. And good for you for starting while you're young. <laughs> now, chances are the person that you've chosen for this example, let's say it's your grandfather, he most likely had a social security card, and there is a wonderful free database online in the United States called the Social Security Death Index, what is commonly referred to as the SSDI, that you can use to find that grandparent. In 1935, the Social Security Act was signed into law by President Franklin Roosevelt, and consequently, more than 30 million Americans were registered by 1937. Well, today, the master file from the Social Security Administration contains over 80 million records of deaths that have been reported to the Social Security Administration, and they're publicly available online. Most of the information included in the index 
dates from 1962, although some data is there from as early as 1937. Now, this is because the Social Security Administration began to use a computer database for processing requests for benefits in 1962. Many of the earlier records back to 1937 haven't been added. The file includes the following information if it was reported to the administration. Their Social Security number, their name, their date of birth, their date of death, the state, county, or zip code of residence, all great information for tracing your family tree. The SSDI does not have a death record for everyone, and occasionally you might find an error here and there if something was reported inaccurately, but overall it's a terrific resource. As with all records, it provides clues that you should try to verify through an additional record source. Now, there are many websites that feature this database. Today, we're going to use the one at the website called World Vital Records. Now, while many of their databases are only available as part of a paid subscription, the SSDI is free. We like that. So here's the web address that will take you directly to the Social Security Death Index at World Vital Records. It's worldvitalrecords.com slash indexinfo dot ASPX question mark IX equals SSDIALL. And as always, I will have that link for you in the show notes for this episode number three. If you're listening through iTunes, you can just click the website link uh, in the upper right hand corner on the listing page for this podcast. So on the SSDI page at World Vital Records. Enter your grandparents' given name, which is their first name, uh, the family name, which is, of course, their last name or surname, the place of their death, uh, this could just be the state that they lived in, and the year that they died, and click the Search This Database button, and hopefully you will get back a result that includes your grandparent. Now, remember, you're looking at data, not an original record. So this is not a true vital record, which would be considered a primary source. And we talked about sources in episode two, and there are several types of sources. A primary source is a document that was created at the time of the event by an authoritative source, usually somebody with direct personal knowledge of the event that's being documented. Like a death certificate is completed at the time of death by the attending physician. So he's right there. He knows it really happened. These are the best and usually most accurate types of sources that you can find. And that's what you want. The really key information in this search result that you got is the county information. In order to get an original death certificate, which would be your primary source, you have to know which county the person died in. Now, you may already know that information for your grandparent, but keep this in mind because the further back we go, the more crucial it's going to be to know the county that's involved since that's where death records are recorded. Now, by any chance, did your grandparent not show up in the results even though that you know that they worked after 1937 when the Social Security got rolling and you know that they have passed away? Well, don't fret. We have other ways to try and find the information. And this brings us to what I think is a really important concept to keep in mind whenever you're researching your family on the Internet. Each search is conducted at a specific moment in time. 
running an SSDI search or a Google search tomorrow might give you results different than the one that you ran today. Because the internet is being updated second by second, and the SSDI has been updated several times over the years. In the case of the SSDI database, you can't be absolutely sure that the website that you're using to search the SSDI has the most current information available. Now, here's a perfect example of what I'm talking about. When I searched for my grandfather on my dad's side from the Family Tree Legends website, because they have the database on their website, uh, they're the company that makes the free genealogy database that I talked about in episode one, I didn't get any results. Now, I know that my grandfather died in 1971, and I know that he worked his entire life, so he must have been registered with the Social Security. Then I went to another website called Ancestry.com and searched for him in their SSDI database, and he popped right up. While, on the other hand, my maternal grandmother shows up in all three websites that I've mentioned. So in most cases, you'll find who you're looking for, but occasionally, like with my grandfather, you may have to dig in your heels and try the SSDI on a couple of different websites to find them. But never give up, never surrender, that's my motto. And of course, each website database offers just a little different variation on the terms that you can search on. In Family Tree Legends, uh, they give you lots of variables, while World Vital Records has just a handful to work with. So just in case you have a stubborn ancestor who eludes your first SSDI search, I will include links to a variety of SSDI databases online that you can try. If you do have luck on World Vital Records, be sure and click the More Details link next to your search results because it includes some fun extras, like a link called Historical Events next to the birth year and the death year, that will take you to a list of important historical events that were happening during those particular years. It's kind of fun to see what was going on in the world when your grandparent was born. You'll also find a link there called Neighbors, which will take you to a listing of folks who lived in the same county as your ancestor and died within a year or two of them. But most helpful is that your research results will include a listing of nearby cemeteries which are good possibilities for where your ancestor may have been buried. Again, just clues to hopefully send you in the right direction. But as I said, the death certificate is going to be your best and primary source, and almost always it will include the name and address of the cemetery where the person was buried. Now here are a few more search tips if you don't find your ancestor right away in the SSDI. Number one. Make sure that you tried alternative spellings for their name. You never know how it might have been typed into the SSDI database. Number two, many SSDI indexes allow you to use wildcards in your search. So, for example, you could type in pat asterisk, and the asterisk is the wildcard, and that will pull up any name that has the first three letters as P-A-T, such as Patrick or Patricia, you get the idea. Number three, try using less information in your search. Now, maybe one of the details that you've been including is different in the SSDI database. So, for example, uh, it may ask for state and you enter California because that's where your grandfather died when they're actually looking for Oklahoma because that's where he first applied for his Social Security card. Well, by leaving off the state, you're going to get more results. 
or leave off the birth year, because even though you know it's correct, it may have been recorded incorrectly in the SSDI, and therefore it's preventing your ancestor from appearing in the search results. Number four, you could try leaving out the middle name, because middle names are not usually included in the database. However, if you don't have luck with their given name, try searching the middle name as their given name. In the case of my grandfather, his given name was Robert, but he went by the initials J.B. But in the SSDI, his name is spelled out J-A-Y-B-E-E. -E. <laughs> Go figure. Now, number five, remember that married women will most likely be listed under their married surname, not their maiden name. But if you strike out with the married name, go ahead and give the maiden name a try. She may have applied for her card when she was single and never bothered to update the administration's records. Or if she was married more than once, again, check all her married names for that same reason. And number six, don't include the zip code if there is a search field for it because zip codes did not appear in earlier records. And finally, while most folks will appear in the SSDI, there are those who just won't. <laughs> But knowing where information is not located can be just as important down the road in your research as knowing where it is located. So I recommend making a note in your database that you did search the SSDI with no result. This is going to save you from duplicating the effort down the road because you forgot that you looked there. Remember what Miriam said in our interview? Yes, yes, I admit it. In the past, I've actually managed to check out books I've already been through, and I've ordered a record or two that I already had. Lesson learned. Don't make the same mistake. So be sure and document each place that you looked and what you found. So here's your assignment for this week. Go through your genealogy database and do a quick Social Security death index search on every deceased person who was living after 1937. Hopefully, you'll be able to fill in several more blanks in your genealogy database and your family tree. Well, that's going to bring us to the end of the show. You'll find the show notes for this episode, which include all the links I've talked about at my website, genealogygems.com. And there you'll also discover a lot more tips and tools for finding your family history in my podcasts, the blog posts, books, and videos. Become a Genealogy Gems premium member, and you're also going to get access to exclusive content like my full-length video classes and the premium podcast episodes. We have a new one of those coming out every month. Now, if you have any questions about this episode, or if you'd like to share your experiences on how the podcast has impacted your own family history journey, I would love to hear from you. You can email me at genealogygemspodcast at gmail.com or leave a voicemail at 925-272-4021 and we might just play it here on the show. Thanks so much for listening, friend. I'll talk to you soon. <laughs>